0: Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones-Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base, joneswalker.com, and by Short and Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas.
1: Welcome to this special edition of Out to Lunch, Louisiana. I'm Christian Mader in Lafayette. I'm Peter Rashudi in New
2: Orleans. And in Baton Rouge, I'm Stephanie Regal.
1: Normally, we're the hosts of Out to Lunch in our respective cities, but during the course of the current public health crisis, we're joining forces to bring you a statewide look at what's happening in the world of business and finance.
3: Now, currently we're all quarantined in our respective homes. Normally I'd be having lunch at Commander's Palace. Commander's is closed this week, but you can find out more about their plans to resume pickup and delivery at commanderspalace.com.
2: In Baton Rouge, the restaurant that normally hosts out to lunch, Mansers on the Boulevard, is open for pickup and delivery. You can order by calling them at 225-923-3366.
1: In Lafayette, the French press is doing curbside takeout. You can also get menu items, including a family dinner, delivered through Waiter or Grubhub, or directly from the restaurant, 337-233-9449. Remember the days when you could go out to a restaurant, or a bar, or a music festival? In Louisiana, we have over 400 festivals every year. Uh, from the internationally renowned, like Jazz Fest in New Orleans, and Festival International here in Lafayette, to unique local favorites like the Shrimp and Petroleum Festival in Morgan City, or the Rice Festival in Crowley, where my dad's from. And then there's the literal thousands of bars and restaurants across the state, with regional specialties like Smoked Meat in Ville Platte or the Muffaletta in New Orleans. For now, though, our Louisiana way of life has come to a grinding halt. It's tough times for all of us, but especially for folks and businesses that rely on social gathering, not just because they're closed down, but also because of the uncertainty of what their businesses will look like when we get back to normal. Gus Resende owns seven food and drink establishments in Acadiana, and through his company, Social Entertainment, he's the promoter of a handful of festivals and events, among them the Acadiana Poboy Festival. Gus, we're told the CARES Act has provisions in it that are designed to help small business owners like you and your employees, even the ones who might uh, you know, work primarily for tips. Are you finding that to be true? Is, is there federal help that's actually helping you?
4: I believe so. Um, it's still, uh, there's still a lot of things that need to be tightened up by the government uh, when it comes to the application process. Uh, we are working hand in hand with our bankers, uh, since the government is asking the bankers to ob- obviously facilitate the process. But uh, it's still kind of, we're, we're still, you know, the word that we're getting from our CPAs and our attorneys and, and the bankers is to be patient as they develop the proper application process. But uh, we believe that help is on the way and uh, is going to give us a little bit of a breathing room right now. But it's still it's still a little murky, uh, the, 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 the application process and how funds are going to be dispersed and how we're going to be able to apply for the funds and what will be forgiven, what will be a loan. still still a little bit of, uh, um, you know, we're not quite certain yet how all is going to play out. We're asked just to be patient as the government continues to develop these uh, procedures. That's going to be
1: kind of difficult. And I mean, you know... I would imagine you own a bunch of different types of restaurants that some of them are, you know, maybe um, working better than others. I mean, can you talk a little bit about uh, how sort of the varied business interests you've got are working on an individual basis? I mean, are you finding that some things are working and some things aren't
4: right now? Exactly. We are, we are looking at our entire portfolio of uh, businesses and uh, about a month ago, when this really began to, uh, to really affect us in a day-to-day operations, we, um, we started looking at each business. Uh, so to really break it down and give you guys an idea, we, we have Tropical Smoothie Cafes, which is a franchise, and we have five locations in Acadiana. We are fortunate. They're all mostly drive-through operations. So we have been able to keep our staff safe and keep our customers safe and still provide um, as much service as we can and we have seen a significant drop in sales uh, anywhere between you know uh, 30 and 50 percent but nothing close to some of the other restaurants are facing uh, then you move forward to Dick's daiquiris which is a play lunch daiquiri spot we had to shut down because we have a bar permit so uh, by law we're not supposed to operate with a bar permit and uh, so we decided to shut it down and kind of give us give ourselves a little breathing room and rethink about Dick since we've been in business for 12 years there. So we have a lot to think and a lot to, to, to try to figure out how we want to approach that business moving forward. Then we have uh, uh, our two establishments downtown, one being Central Pizza, which has been a staple in the community for a couple of years. Luckily Pizza, easy to pick it up, easy to prepare. Uh, So we've been very fortunate that the community is embracing us and helping us in this tough time. We have a window so people can pick up their pizzas through the window. So we have seen obviously a massive drop in sales, but we are fortunate that we're hanging on pretty strong so far. And then the next door neighbor, Tula Tacos, since it's a very young business, only six months in operation, we felt that it was time to actually shut it down. And give us the opportunity to rethink about what we did as a business uh, maybe work on some of the conceptual uh, flaws that we that we put in place and, and, and give our staff a little breathing room and we're able to move that staff over to some of our businesses and keep everybody as many people that want to still work keep them employed so we're taking this day by day we're looking at each business and what their needs are we're waiting to see what the government's really going to be doing and when it comes to helping. Uh, but this is really time for us to kind of take a step back, reflect, and look at each business in a different way. Because it, it, there's no such a thing as looking at the whole thing at once. You're going to have to look at each one. And each one is going to have their own destiny for now. So,
2: Gus, you said that the bankers are telling, advising patients, you know, as... as people work through the process obviously you're lucky because you have a couple of different types of establishments right so you can evaluate but for those that just have one or two how long do these guys have how long can they be patient and what are you hearing from the others in your community because they may it's already week 4 right how much how much more can they weather
4: yeah it's you know this this pandemic has been so eye opening for a state like ours you know we we have our own set of issues as we know and we are so um, interrelated with the hospitality, you know, and what that means, you know, events and community. And we're so close to each other in so many ways how we eat, how we dance, how we play, how we communicate. So, um, but also it, this pandemic is showing some of the flaws that the hospitality industry as a whole uh, has. I mean, we've been talking about wages for so long, we've been talking about compensation to cooks versus compensation to bartenders. We've been talking about just how the entire business structure uh, uh, exists for the restaurants and bars. And we are noticing that not only employees leave paycheck to paycheck, but business owners leave paycheck to paycheck, which is, is a very flawed way of running a business because it doesn't give you any security and sustainability. So we're gonna have to take a real hard look uh, when, when all this is over, um, and this may not a- answer your question right now, but we're going to have to take a very hard look at how the hospitality industry is going to, uh, uh, you know, continue to operate in the future because it's obviously not sustainable. It takes two weeks to break most of us. So that's just not a viable solution. But, but speaking now in the urgent matter of people needing help, you're right, uh, Stephanie, there's going to be people that are ready you know, they were going into that very first week of the pandemic already probably negative on their books as they go into the week. So you can only imagine that um, what kind of pressure that's putting in and, and also the unknowns about, you know, the support that I'm going to get from the government. Is it going to be a support that will be mostly forgiven? That way I can continue to run and grow? Uh, because at the end of the day, some businesses already have debt. If they're gonna, even if it's a one percent interest with a long period of payouts, still you are acquiring more debt, and at the end of the day, you're gonna have to recognize if this is even worth it at you know at your break-even point, acquiring more debt. So there's so many questions in how people are gonna deal with it right now, but as hard as it is, we are trying so hard in our company to think about what's gonna be on the other side because right now. We can do good by people. We can help feeding in the community. We can try to uh, keep everybody engaged and keep people employed as much as we can. We can give them resources they need to go find help. But the tough part, really, as much as people don't want to hear, is going to be how we're going to deal on the other side and that's the big question mark: How is the hospitality uh industry is going to behave uh in Louisiana and one of the things that we do is events we 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 were we were um, tasked uh, by our uh, company partners to put on 22 events this year. And we haven't done a single one because we were just getting started in the month of March. So now uh, one of the things that we're really doing is participating in webinars all over the country and trying to understand what other production event companies are doing. And the word on the street is collaboration, collaboration, collaboration. There is no such a thing as um you know if you're a new event you need to reconsider if you should be doing this event this year if you are old event you should consider consolidating your efforts with somebody else that has been doing some other big events but right now it's consolidation and collaboration on the event side of things uh but i'm very curious to know how the other side looks like how people's behavior how people go out to eat how people uh, react to each other in festival settings. So there's so much to be seen.
3: Gus, this is Peter. I, I'm going to ask you a question along the same lines. People keep asking me, are we ever going to do that? Are we ever going to go to sporting events? Are we going to uh, go to these festivals? Uh, I know they're being pushed off to the fall, and that uh, seems to be the best thing to do. But it, it can't turn on a dime. People aren't going to suddenly be um, fine with being around thousands of people. What, why do, you, what do you think?
4: Yeah, I I think this applies to restaurants and bars as well. I mean, you know, my gut feeling tells me that, first of all, the the businesses and the events that are catered towards the younger demographic, I think they're going to have the least issues. Why? Because youngsters, for the most part, are going to be ready to adventure into the world. Uh, The nightclubs, the bars, I I hope that it's going to be a responsible thing, but I do have a feeling that it's going to be a flooding, right? Of kids wanting and ready to go out and go have fun so uh, I think it's gonna be based on demographic I think uh, you know uh, I take Central Pizza as an example I'm, I'm very curious to know how our, our you know it's a very tight little spot and I wonder how people are gonna behave you know same thing for some of our very uh, intimate events you know so uh, to tell you I, I think it's going to be a shift in how people behave when it comes to uh, being around each other, I do think there's going to be a, 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 a initial like let's come off the gates kind of thing. But then uh, I think we're going to be able to analyze things by demo, by age, by age, not demographic, but by age. I think it's going to be something where uh, people are on a little older as- aspect they're going to be be a little more thoughtful uh, in how they approach things. And I think the youngsters will be a little more aggressive. But it's also going to be about like. How we prepare for it you know so we we are talking about ideas of you know does this provide a new job description uh where we have people that constantly stay in our venues keeping the place sanitary uh what kind of message we as as a you know louisiana restaurant uh group are going to send out to people and how we approach how we keep places sanitized and decontaminated and how do we you know it's going to be so many layers to this but I definitely think behavior will change. I think we'll be an initial uh, rush, but then we're gonna be living different days after this thing is all done. I, I think we'll be a I think we're gonna to have to hopefully um trim trim the fat a little bit and uh and and refocus how we handle hospitality, especially in our state.
1: So it sounds to me like you, you feel fairly optimistic about what the events industry looks like after this, but um have you come across something in your mind that, 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 that really sticks out as, as something that might actually benefit from other, you you made note of the fact that, right. That there are some, some cracks or some flaws in the hospitality industry specifically that you think this might force us to resolve. What about in events? I mean, is there something in the way that we conduct events that might change for the better after this?
4: Yeah, I, I think it's going to, you know, competition is going to get tighter. You know, us being a production company that, that, we are a for-profit company that puts on several events throughout the year but we do have events that benefit certain nonprofits the approach that we are taking is we need to be very sensitive and careful how we approach our programming schedule moving forward because we have nonprofit organizations that their livelihood is to put on that one event every year and if we come in and we rock the boat, it's gonna hurt our reputation, it's gonna hurt our ability to put on events. So the, the, the reality is, is that, I don't know if I'm quite answering the, 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 the question, Christian, but I, I think the, the way we are looking at it is, is that it's gonna provide new opportunities, but we need to be very sensitive of, of who has been here before, who has done certain events before, and I think there is some sort of seniority that we have to pay respect, to it in order to keep the industry viable. But I'm sure there will be some new events out there. But I I encourage everybody to rethink about, if you have a new event, rethink about hosting it this year. There's gonna be a a limitation in sponsorship. There's gonna be a limitation in resources from our city officials to be able to put on events. So we are doing that ourselves and trying to be responsible, but still trying to keep a company moving. You know, so uh, uh, just really waiting to see how how the governor deals with this uh stay home uh, I, I believe come april 30th that will be you know mid this month i'm sure there will be an announcement in how uh things are going to continue to go in may so uh right now we're just taking one day at a time but i think it will be a transformational um uh thing happening on the hospitality industry across the board
1: gus rizindi is a restaurant tour festival promoter and co-owner of social entertainment in lafayette gus Thanks so much for joining us on Out to Lunch, Louisiana. Thank you, guys. You're listening to a
3: special edition of Out to Lunch, Louisiana with Christian Mater in Lafayette, Stephanie Regal in Baton Rouge, and I'm Peter Raschuti here in New Orleans. New Orleans might not have invented the concept of partying, but we have certainly perfected it before it became an alleged virus incubator. Mardi Gras in New Orleans was one of the most celebrated parties on earth. There are free parties every single night on Bourbon Street and Frenchman Street. Even in the world of business, we're known for socializing. Although conventions are meant to be places for doing business, there's a reason Las Vegas and New Orleans are two of the country's biggest convention destinations. In New Orleans, the world of tourism and conventions meet in the offices of an organization called New Orleans and Company, a city body that was formed by the recent combination of the New Orleans Tourism Marketing Corporation and the Convention and Visitors Bureau. The Senior Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer of New Orleans and Company is Mark Romig. Mark, you've been a guest on Out to Lunch before under happier circumstances. Uh, Back then, I would never have imagined that I was going to be asking you uh, about turning the New Orleans Convention Center into a hospital, but that is what has happened. Uh, In a city that's already stretched pretty thin for medical care, where is New Orleans finding enough medical staff to run an extra thousand-bed hospital?
5: Uh, good, good day. Good to see you, Peter. Um, and again, on uh, the different circumstances next time, hopefully. Uh, well, the the governor stood up the Morial uh, Convention Center to provide the step-down facility for patients who were no longer critical, and they would free up beds in the hospitals for these individuals to come to the convention center to then be monitored and discharged and uh, the doctor the governor through his uh, gosep office has uh, contracted out to bring in the medical professionals to do the necessary work at the convention center uh, and uh, they've stood up again another uh, set of units across the street in a parking lot for people who are um, in the symptoms uh, and waiting for their results as well so uh, it's necessary uh, i think the convention center is playing a very vital role as it has played for many, many years in our community. And obviously we see this being uh, limited in, in use and at some point we'll get up to the other side of this and then it will be uh, mitigated and brought back to its, um, its uh, use as a convention facility. So it's an important role. Our customers have, uh, have applauded the use of the facility because they know how important it is. And it's just not happening in New Orleans. As you know, the Javits Center in New York City is currently being used in this way and many other facilities like the, our convention center around the country are being used as that surge uh, facility.
3: And Mark, uh, you know, we've all been to a convention, but you've been on the other side of things. I cannot imagine how difficult it is to unwind in a com- convention, to, to postpone it and cancel everything. Where, do you play a role in all that?
5: Well, the New Orleans & Company, which is the private uh, member-based organization, was known as the CVB, New Orleans CVB, but changed its uh, branding to New Orleans & Company to speak to more of the encompassing aspect of the work that it does in the hospitality industry. They have a very powerful sales force, and what they do is work with these conventions, associations, and meeting planners to build out their convention needs when they come to New Orleans. They have been on the phone almost on a 24-7 basis since we went into this to uh, primarily to retain the business. Obviously, there were cancellations and turning those cancellations into postponements, uh, retaining the business for later in the year. And we've been successful in in some regards to do that. Obviously, we're projecting that we will be out of this. And at some point in late summer and then into the fall, we can slot these conventions into spaces that were open. We still had a very robust um, year ahead of us, and so we're using opportunities that we see in the, this calendar year to get this business to come in, because that stands up the jobs that have been affected, as well as the restaurants and all the other uh, aspects of the tourism industry. So uh, it's a mammoth, es- mammoth effort. Uh, it's very um, time-consuming. Uh, these conversations are very critical and delicate. Uh, and, and again, it's just not like Katrina happening to us and we've got the rest of the world coming to our aid. Uh, everyone's going through the same process and uh, hats off to our great team um, led by Stephen Perry and Stephanie Turner and Kim Priez, uh, who were in the fight each and every day trying to stand up what we see happening here. And that is these loss of jobs and, and trying to get that back into the, into the uh, swing of things Add to that the fact that consumer confidence in travel has waned significantly. Obviously, there are stay-at-place and stay-at-home directives around the country. Um, and as soon as we know that we're able to stand back up the the consumer of the leisure travel, uh, we need to do that, and we need to be ready to do that. Uh, we, we're starting to see that that will be mainly from a regional drive market coming into our community, into our state. And that'll depend, obviously, as well as on the Evenness or unevenness of, of other states and other destinations that are perhaps are not as far along as we are in reaching that peak and coming back to the other side. Uh, and what does that mean? If you follow what's happening in China and, and the Asian countries, uh, you have uh, situations where uh, they thought they were on the, on the good end of it and all of a sudden some people are getting reinfected because other people are coming into the area. So uh, we're in a, a whole new dynamic here on how to figure this out. And the conversation earlier about festivals Sporting events all of this is being rethought uh, of as how do we approach this as uh, as humankind and and how our behaviors are going to be changing and that will directly affect I think hospitality going forward
2: so Mark that sort of leads to the question that I was that I was going to ask you basically what Peter had had asked of Gus I mean even when the restaurants reopen or even if people feel comfortable driving down for the weekend and staying in a hotel walking around the French quarter, What are you hearing on the webinars with your, your fellow convention and visitors bureaus around the country? I mean, do they think that it's going to be a long, long time before people really do feel comfortable gathering in the tens of thousands in indoor facilities?
5: Yeah. In New Orleans alone, we have 145 plus festivals. And to to Gus's point, I think uh, there'll be a lot of rethinking of what that looks like going forward. Restaurants as it relates to seating protocols, uh, You know, when you think through the distancing measures that that we're being asked to follow now, six feet apart, how does that look in a restaurant when we do get to stand up our um, activities? Um, What does that look like as it relates to checking into a hotel? And are people going to be required to have a mask? Uh, And what does that look like? Uh, So I think, again, uh, a lot of discussions the industry's trying to figure this out as well, but you know we're having to follow the experts. We have to follow the medical experts on what they're suggesting, or not suggesting in this case, recommending and requiring for us to do so that we can get on the other side of this pandemic. And of course, we're all thinking through the day that we get the vaccine done, and then we can look back on this and say, oh yeah, remember those days. I mean, uh, some of us, well, not too many of us on the call right now, uh, go back to the 60s when we would stand in line for our TB shots, but it was, it was just sort of that same feeling. We needed to get something that gave everybody the confidence that we could, we could react and be part of, uh, of our life again. But I do think we're seeing a different, um, a different life ahead of us for all of us. We're staying positive. We've got to stay positive. We want to bring these jobs back and we want to make sure that our economy can stand up across the world. Uh, we just got to listen to the medical professionals.
1: I'm curious what, what it's going to look like to try and, you know, market that new Orleans is safe and open for business again, kind of once we get, let's say the public policy. Okay. That says, all right, things are pretty safe. I mean, there could be some lasting damage or at least lingering damage from what we've seen in the national media about, you know, uh, well, this was all caused by Mardi Gras or even like in my profession in journalism, right? There, there were reporters that had gone to that journalism conference in new Orleans that, that, that sort of contracted the virus, right? And some of these things might have lingering effects. I mean, how do you see actually trying to rebrand that it's safe?
5: Yeah, that's a very good point, Christian. I think uh, it's gonna take some uh, some uh, messaging, some truth messaging, and uh, the fact that we are ahead of it. You know, we're one of the four testing sites in the nation that got the test, test done, which I think was one of the reasons why you saw so many results coming back. Um, Uh, we know this the the truth of the story of Mardi Gras there were no federal guidelines given to the city about Mardi Gras not uh, being anything other than what it was going to be a a normal festival Uh, this mayor uh, has uh, spoken about how she would have done different things if she had been given uh, direction so there were major events happening in other cities at the same time around the country Uh, but I got to tell you we've got a great marketing team uh, that knows how to message and knows how to speak the truth and I think we take the right steps and we can uh, overcome this as we overcame the BP oil spill when people thought there was oil on Bourbon Street. Uh, We had to message that uh, out as well. And of course, 10 years after Katrina, people thought there was still water on the streets of New Orleans. And again, it's just a matter of attacking that in a very truthful way. And we'll do that. Uh, We'll do that with the rest of the nation and ensure that people know that when they come to the city of New Orleans, they will enjoy the city that they have enjoyed for over 300 years.
3: Mark, uh... You know, I've been asked to do a couple of webinars down the road for con, uh, virtual conventions and everything. But one of the things that we know is that the real advantage of a convention is the networking. So can you replace a convention?
5: You know, that's interesting. There's uh, all, of us, all of us have attended meetings virtually, uh, and it's just not the same, right? Uh, it, you you want to be able to see somebody eye to eye, you know, in the days, shake your hand, make that deal, uh, go out to dinner. Uh, enjoy a, a speaker or a, or a conference trade show, and be part of the activity. Again, I think we need to follow our federal uh, and medical guidelines. Uh, I'm not. Uh, I don't think anyone's giving up on on meetings and conventions, but I, I think we're going to be thinking it differently. And uh, and we're a creative people in this nation, and I think we'll we'll figure that out as well because people do need to have some uh, sense of camaraderie and uh, personal touch. Uh, but as long as it's in a in a very um, safe way. So my sense is that we'll we'll think this through uh, And all of us the entire nation the entire the world will, will come together and make this make this better We'll be stronger for it. That's for sure
3: Mark, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you if you thought the Saints uh, schedule was gonna start on time um, what, do you, what do you think you're the announcer you would know
5: I'm the hopeful. I'm you know hopefully optimistic uh, that uh, we're going to have a great season again. Uh, those of us that watched the the replay of the Atlanta game uh, this week, um, again felt the spirit uh, coming back. And uh, I, again, I'm hopeful that I'll be able to say touchdown, saints. <laughs> Soon. You're,
3: you're practicing already. That is great. <laughs> Mark Romig is senior vice president and chief marketing officer of New Orleans and Company. Mark. Thank you so much for joining us today on Out to Lunch Louisiana.
5: Thanks for having me, and best wishes to everybody. Stay safe.
2: You're listening to a special edition of Out to Lunch Louisiana with Peter Raschuti in New Orleans, Christian Mater in Lafayette, and I'm Stephanie Regal in Baton Rouge. I'd like to introduce you to Steve Suleiman. Steve is originally from Belgium, where he got a degree in international business and management. After that, he got a doctor of science degree from Tulane University School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine. Steve, I imagine when you pursued these two very disparate avenues of academic study, business and tropical medicine, there were people who wondered when you would ever be able to use those two skill sets at the same time. And well, that time has arrived. As executive director of the Baton Rouge Health District, you are uniquely qualified to understand how this pandemic is undermining our economy. So let me start by asking you, in your unique expert opinion. Does the Louisiana medical community have the financial resources and physical infrastructure to keep up with this pandemic?
6: Uh, well, thank you for having me, Stephanie. It's a great opportunity. Um, um, and to answer your question, I would say yes and no. I, I think in terms of capacity, uh, Louisiana, which have, have experienced both New Orleans and, and, and Baton Rouge, I think has a, a, a tremendous amount of high-quality uh, healthcare opportunities, some of the, the leading organizations in, in the country. But right now, the medical community, um, both across the state as well as across the world, is, uh, is struggling, um, uh, keeping up with the demands of the, the COVID pandemic and the, and the care that it requires. So I think given the circumstances, um, um, the medical community across the state is doing as well as it can. And, and I do believe it's, it's still providing high, high quality care. Uh, we've been a little bit, I've been a little bit involved in uh, surge and capacity planning for the, for the Baton Rouge market. Um, the hospitals have doubled their, uh, their number of available uh, ICU beds and, and vented beds um, to, to meet the, the needs of the, of the patients across region two and um and to date those uh, those beds have not been filled yet so so we're definitely more than meeting demand at least for the time being
2: and and that's very good news um, we heard from the governor just yesterday that the latest numbers suggest that, that we're not going to run out of i think ventilators or icu beds at least we're not in danger of that at this point as was projected a, just a few days ago but um what what do you i mean We've seen, like in New Orleans, for instance, where we were discussing a few minutes ago, converting the convention center into a makeshift facility. Has there been any planning for that in Region Two? Has there been talk of using the convention center, the Raising Cane River Center in, in Baton Rouge, for something like that?
6: Uh, yes. So, in the in the search planning that is going on, there's both an, an immediate search uh, surge goal. And uh, and that was uh, at least increasing the number of ICU beds by uh, by fifty percent, and that has been accomplished and more than more than completed. That goal has been met. And then there's an extended surge goal, um, uh, in case um, there is a, a significant escalation in number of cases, and and that will include uh, a similar scenarios in New Orleans, expanding the um, um, the hospital capacity to the convention center, and then uh, the when when uh, the most uh, complex care is provided uh, de- de-escalating to, uh, to an environment like the, like, the, like the convention center, setting up a, a hospital there.
2: As over the years we've seen a shift towards telemedicine, obviously that's been greatly accelerated in the past few weeks. We've also seen a shift to more outpatient care. Is this pandemic exposing weaknesses in that system? Do we need to go back to a world where we maybe we have more acute care beds and ICU beds for sick people? Because, I mean, when you look at the numbers, as many people as have this pandemic, it's still a very, very small percentage of the overall population and an even smaller percentage that's critically ill from it. And yet we're hearing that we're reaching the limits of being able to care for those people. So where's the disconnect? Uh, well, I
6: think uh, a big part of the challenge, as well as the effort right now, is to is to um, flatten the curve, which basically means try and spread out the number of cases as much as possible so that the amount of care that is required at any given time is less than what the, the max capacity uh, uh, in the healthcare systems is. Um, um and, uh, and I think overall is working uh, quite well, uh, as some of the data suggests for Louisiana and the rest of the world. And, uh, and, and, and I think that's more than anything what's making, what's making a difference uh, today. I would say a little bit broader, uh, Louisiana is, is arguably better prepared to deal with emergency scenarios than a lot of other places, in part because there's been a, a significant amount of emergency planning Done in the past by uh, MoSEP at the city level, GoSEP at the state level, um, um, inst- institutions like the, the the Louisiana Center for Emergency Preparedness, because of some of the the natural disasters, some of the other scenarios that the that the state has to has to consider, and the the nature of the pandemic is significantly different and is quite unique. But yet the foundation of of productively bringing different stakeholders together and having meaningful conversations and quick decision making into how to address difficult circumstances i think is something louisiana including baton rouge is uniquely well prepared to do and so uh, for, for an organization like ours that means within the the first week of the of the um, the, the the governor's announcements and uh, the, the change of doing business. We had uh, stood up an initiative to uh, facilitate care for healthcare workers uh, across the uh, children of healthcare workers across the Baton Rouge markets to, to, to make sure that uh, that people could stay at work when they're scheduled to work and, and care for patients. Um, we became a key partner in a, um, a quick turnaround uh, time testing initiative for hospital inpatients to quickly know whether or not they're COVID positive to preserve some of the use of PPE for patients that are, that are not positive but, uh, but have to be treated as such waiting for an answer of the test. And then uh, we stood up a PPE donation uh, initiative partnering with BRAC and others to uh, take on donations Uh, across industry, especially the chemical and the petrochemical industry, and distribute that PPE, that protective equipment, to all the regional hospitals based on a a real-time needs basis um um and I, we already talked a little bit about the surge in capacity planning to meet the the peak demand so so i do think the region has responded very well and is coordinated very well overall from my perspective
1: i'm really curious how this is going to have an impact say on entrepreneurship or innovation you know once things are all said and done when you when you look at the business sector or the way uh, you know government has sort of taken a broad sort to a lot of regulations in order to kind of immediately expand access to care, right? Immediately we start thinking about things like telehealth, but setting that aside for a minute, I mean, what what kind of uh, space within uh, the medical industry, the healthcare industry broadly, uh, do, do you really see emerging after this uh, in a way that's innovative? And you know, what kind of new companies do you see or new technologies emerging?
6: Sure. And I think what, what might have helped is that uh, the, the U.S. Um, as a framework, I think, is, is one of the most conducive places to innovation in the, in the world. It was part of the reason um, why I moved here. I, I, my, my background, I studied chemistry at the University of Antwerp and then ended up working for a drug discovery company in, uh, in, in HIV drug discovery. And one of the key partnerships and collaborations that we had was with the Tulane Primate Center. And if you expand it a little bit to the Louisiana Vaccine Center, the South Louisiana Institute for Infectious Disease Research, the Tulane School of Public Health, which is one of the top dozen or two dozen in the world. Um, then some of the great work at the, at the vet school with some amongst other world-class uh, respiratory virologists, um, which helped us set up the, the quick turnaround PCR test. And I think that combined with a, with a very dynamic sort of risk tolerant um, s- um, system of, of commerce, I think proves to be a, a great engine for innovation. And I think some of the initial response to the, the COVID pandemic um, has been a great example of that where agencies like the FDA stepped up and, and immediately developed based on their existing framework, a uh, a mechanism for getting new tests uh, reviewed and, and approved and implemented quickly. Um, some of the hospitals and, and all of the members of the health district or most all of them already had um, telemedicine avenues that were HIPAA approved that they quickly um, scaled uh, and started moving some of their care to 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 a virtual basis and uh, and I think to to build on that knowledge base, we're arguably arguably Louisiana, especially South Louisiana, is one of the one of the the, the hubs for infectious disease research and innovation. is going to continue to provide opportunities to build on some of the relationships as well as the, the technologies that are either. Have been quickly developed, or that are being leveraged, and to continue to grow them um, um, and, and translate them into to new sustainable you know, technologies and businesses. And for us, that will mean um, um, continuing to focus on the economic development dimension of the, of the health district and to promote um, um, new companies as well as as partnerships between the health systems and, and fast-growing technology leaders.
1: The speed obviously comes with some extra risk, right? There's a reason to some extent that, that the FDA has been plotting and how it, you know, um, regulates or approves different drugs or different treatments. I mean, do you see a, a scenario where some of these moves that we're making to deal with an immediate problem uh, bite us long term? Uh, yes and
6: no. I mean, a, a lot of the, um, the, the pathways towards approval have been accelerated, but a lot of the key stakeholders and the mechanisms are, are still the same. A lot of the testing that goes on um, for COVID as well as any other tests is typically done within the CLIA regulatory framework and most every hospital has a CLIA accredited certified lab um, that, that, that does most all of their in-house testing. So even though there's an accelerated new um, group of, of, of COVID tests available, the framework within those tests are completed, or, are under the same regulatory, the same sort of quality scrutiny. Some of the key players that have made some of these tests available uh, from a reference lab perspective, it's, it's organizations like Quest and LabCorp, which are multi-billion dollar lab companies that are highly equipped to quickly um, roll out new technologies within the hospital it's companies like Cepheid, like Abbott, that are now making some of these, some of these technologies available. Um, I think taking it one step further out, I think the development of therapeutics and vaccines, that's, that's often where uh, a lot of consideration, a lot of safety testing is required. And I think there to find the right balance of trying to come up with new science, new opportunities quickly, as well as make sure all of the, the, the boxes are checked and all of the, the safety requirements are met, I think is going to be a very unique, very unique question. Um,
3: I hate to say there's been a, a positive side to this, but I, I was, all I was thinking of is that what you do in economic development with biotech and all of that is pretty esoteric to the majority of the people. And all of a sudden, people have realized that you're the answer to to life itself. I mean, is that going to change the way uh, you approach uh, companies and and get funding and things like that?
6: Well, I think one of the most interesting things to me has been that Louisiana has had, for the longest time, world-class organizations that within the, the, the field that they were their most active have been world-renowned or very well-known. Uh, to give you an example, people from all over the country travel to Pennington Biomedical Research Center in Baton Rouge to hear the latest and greatest about cardiometabolic research, about obesity, which in this case, interestingly, um, more and more of the evidence is suggesting that there is a significant link not only between age and susceptibility to COVID, but also between uh, body mass and weight and uh, and, and, and COVID. But some of, those, some of those places like Pennington within their field are, are world leaders. And that would, that's what brought people like me to Louisiana to, to come and live and work and learn. And, and I think um, for that expertise uh, to be... To be a little more visible and recognized, I think is a very interesting. uh, It's still a a, a very challenging and 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 affects tons of people on a very personal level. So it's a very regrettable set of circumstances. But at the same time, it's been a really interesting environment to see how. Some of the world-class science and expertise and how it can really translate into direct help and resources for, uh, for people at the time when they need it most.
2: And Steve, before we let you go, I'm just going to pivot a little bit, but, but given your public health background, um, you know, when we talk about wanting to go back to normal or being on the other side of this, we all know that's not really going to happen in Hamas until there is a vaccine. Realistically, best case scenario, how long until you could vaccinate you know, huge swaths of the population. Best case, is it really 2021? Is it late 2021? Is it 2022 or beyond? Well,
6: I think some of the information that uh, Dr. Fauci has, has shared as the as the the leader of um, NIAID uh, and NIH. I, I think at least a, a year more, realistically, um, even on an accelerated track, because it's not only developing a good vaccine candidate; it's testing it and making sure that it's safe, and then building the infrastructure to uh, to manufacture it. Um, and I know a lot of that planning is going on now. A lot of the work is going on; it's being accelerated. A lot of resources are being are being redirected and made, being made available. I've seen some of the announcements of NIH recently, the Gates Foundation. Um, so I, I think everyone's trying the, the absolute best they can. Um, um, but in, in terms of you know, drug discovery, drug development, vaccine development, um, months, and, and in some cases even a year longer, is light speed is very, very quickly.
2: Well, Steve, thank you so much. Steve Suleiman is executive director of the Baton Rouge Health District. We appreciate you joining us here today on Out to Lunch. Be safe out there. And thank
1: you for joining us on this special edition of Out to Lunch Louisiana. We edited these conversations to fit in the time slot here on your NPR radio station. And you can hear longer versions of these conversations wherever you normally get your Out to Lunch podcast. If you're not an Out to Lunch podcast subscriber, search for Out to Lunch, Out to Lunch Baton Rouge, or Out to Lunch Acadiana on your podcast app. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical director is Eric Merrill. Photos from the show on our website and social media are taken by Jill LaFleur. I'm Christian Bader in Lafayette.
3: I'm Peter Rischuti in New Orleans.
2: And I'm Stephanie Regal in Baton Rouge. We'll see you back here next week for more Out to Lunch Louisiana. Until then, if you're an essential industry and still going to work, thank you. remember to take care of yourself. If you're not going to work, please stay home and stay safe.
0: Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com and by... Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas.